what is the connection between the Queen of Denial, cancer, and musical theater? Our guest on today's Cancer and Comedy episode is the talented Edward Miskey, and he will connect those dots for you. So listen on, my friend. Listen on. Cancer got you down? Pretty grim, huh? How about a show that turns the grim into a grin? Way to go. You made it here to the Cancer and Comedy Podcast, the show to lift you up with hope and humor that heals. Hello, Lifter Uppers. I am Deb Creer, the co-host of Cancer and Comedy, where we like to kick cancer in the butt with stories of healing through hope and humor. It is so awesome that you are here joining us today. But let me introduce you to the co-host of Cancer and Comedy, Dr. Brad Miller. Hey, hey, hey. Thank you, Deb. So good to see you and be with you here on uh, Cancer and Comedy. This is this is the podcast, uh, Deb, where we like to face some kind of grim things like cancer with a bit of a lighter touch. Uh, we believe this model of turning the grim into a grin, and and we also believe that uh, having a cheerful heart is good medicine. It's it's kind of like what Woody Allen is, has said. It's not that I'm afraid to die. I just want, don't want to be there uh, when it happens. Right. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, I'm a stage four breast cancer warrior, and recently cancer popped up again in my thyroid, and I had to deal with that. And I chose to deal with it with a smile and a giggle and even maybe a chortle or two. Mm, that's Well, that's good. You know, I, I, I deal with prostate cancer. That's the, the situation I am in. And so here's what we do know, uh, Deb, cancer doesn't play fair, uh, no. does it? Uh, and so- we have to face cancer head on. We have to conquer cancer uh, with everything that we've got and every uh, weapon in our arsenal, so to speak. And that includes things like a good attitude and mindfulness and even humor. So mm -hmm. that even when bad things happen, uh, we need to be resilient. And I believe that resilience, which is kind of the uh, right. key, key theme of our show here today, is really a key to coping when bad things happen. So uh, Deb, you mentioned something about uh, recurrence of some cancer in your life. You had to be a little resilient with that situation. Right. Tell us about it a little bit. Well, it's actually a brand new diagnosis, um, you know, and, and so that's, it's like, really? Um, and, and I'll be honest, when they told me, hey, you've got thyroid cancer, I was annoyed. I said bad words. Sure. And sure. I felt bad for maybe 10, 15 minutes. And then it was like, okay, now what do we do? What do we need? You know, what is next? And yeah, I mean, it was just that, you know, what, what are the next steps? And, you know, we did, we just kind of, everything went very quickly from the initial diagnosis to actually getting my thyroid removed. It was probably less than a month. Um, and yeah, went through laughing and giggling and making everybody laugh around me. So you seem like you've learned a little bit of a lesson in this episode, but all through your whole cancer mm -hmm. journey about being resilient. Right. Would you say that's an, kind of an important quality it is. that you, um, you have? You know, and it's, it's one of those things we do have to deal with, you know, what we've got. Uh, we've been, you know, we were laughing a little bit before the show, you know, what this has given me, my most recent little thing is my voice is just not what it is supposed to be. And as you and I know, people who use our voices, that gets a little scary. But, you know, I've chosen to make a joke of it. And we just keep going on. 
but it is about kind of picking yourself up, dusting yourself off and and continuing to go. Um, it's not about ignoring what's going on. And I know yeah. that our guest is going to talk about that because, you know, that sometimes we want to do that. We want to bury our heads in the sand, but it is about dusting ourselves off and going on. Well, you know, uh, Deb, in, in my life, the, you know, I, I have a prostate cancer and mm -hmm. I've had surgery with that. And one of the one of the results of that is some, you know, is incontinence. And right. I don't like Not it. one of those fun things to have. I right? don't like it one bit. But uh, one of the, you know, you can uh, you can be embarrassed and uncomfortable mm -hmm. and kind of want to try to hide from it. But it's a reality of my life right now. And it means I'm, you know, I'm a big investor in depends and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I also have to try to be a little bit resilient in that uh, a, a little bit. And kind of go with the flow, if you right. know what I mean. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I kid around people about a little bit about wearing depends and all that kind of good stuff. I also have a two-year-old granddaughter, and every once in a while when we're together, we I kid around with her that well, if you mm -hmm. got to get your diaper change, I guess. Yeah. So so do I. So I think mm -hmm. resilience and what we're going to talk about here today mm -hmm. is a part of life. Not trying right. not to take yourself too seriously, take the situation seriously, mm -hmm. but being resilient to mean had a little bit of a a bit of a hope, a sense right. of hope in the humor. Right. You know, and as we said, our guest today has a great story about resilience. So tell us a little bit more about him. Well, I, I'm certainly glad to do that. Our guest uh, today here on Cancer and Comedy is, uh, is a young man named Edward Miskey. And he is the author of a book called Cancer Musical Theater and Other uh, Chronic Illnesses. Quite a fascinating interview. He was a young man at age, I won't get into all the details of the story here in an introduction because we'll dig into it in the interview, but basically as a, as a young man participating in musical theater, doing a, a, on the, was on the road doing off-Broadway type shows, I think it was Hairspray he was doing, he was got very sick and was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer, of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and that sent his life spiraling out of control for mm -hmm. many years and for about, you know, several year period as a young man and into the musical theater. And so he went through various uh, cycles of uh, kind of depression and coming back from that. And he uses the metaphor in his book of musical theater and kind of uh, that uh, aspect of his life to describe the ups and downs and the joys and the tragedies of going through a cancer diagnosis, a really a, a cool thing, a cool interview. You're going to love this interview, and it revolves around this theme of resilience. Right. You know, it's it's going to be so great, and I know people are going to love it. You know, and following the interview, you're going to want to stick around for Dr. Brad's bad joke of the day, and of course, our faith it or break it segment, and then listener lifter stories. Did you know that you can be a part of an upcoming episode of Cancer and Comedy with your uplifting story of hope and humor in kicking cancer in the butt? Just record a voicemail for us at voicemail.cancerandcomedy.com and tell your story. Well, thank you, Deb. Well, indeed, I wanted to mention that the website for our guest today, uh, Edward Miskey, is his name, edwardmiskey.com. It's E-D-W-A-R-D-M-I-S-K-I-E.com. And his book is Cancer Musical Theater. And oh, other... look, I can be Vanna White. I can show hey, off his you, book. And that's there right. You've is. got the book there, right there. The, the, the book is Cancer Musical Theater and Other 
Chronic Illnesses by Edward Miskey. Enjoy the interview as we get into our conversation with Edward right now. He's the author of, of the book, Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronic Illnesses. His name is Edward Miskey. You can find him at edwardmiskey.com. And he's our guest today. Edward, welcome to uh, Cancer and Comedy. Dr. Brad, thank you for having me. <laughs> it is indeed an honor and a privilege, my friend. I have uh, got to know you a little bit. Here's one of the things I know about you. You are an incredibly talented, but with a guy with a lot of energy and a lot of vibrancy. But uh, we're talking today about when a time when a lot of that kind of took a hit 10 years or so ago. So let's talk a little bit about, tell us your story a little bit, my friend. Oh, spoil the fun. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a way to put it. Cancer spoiled all my fun. Um, yeah, so I, I was an actor, like you'd mentioned, I was kind of like going around the country doing different productions. And, and at the time I was doing a production of Hairspray. This would have been 2011. And uh, during the run of the show, I started to get this lump under my arm that just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, you know, of course... I was like, I have a contract to finish. I have to finish the show and, you know, the show must go on, you know, so I, I let it grow and it just got to be about the size of a grapefruit over the course of five months. By the time I finished the show and went back to New York, I had, I saw my doctor, they sent me for a biopsy and a week later I was in chemo uh, with a diagnosis of a rare enlarged diffuse B cell Burkitt's like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So it was like, of course, a mouthful. And of wow. course, it was aggressive. I was, you know, indicated by the size of it and yes. rare. There are very few cases of it known in the world. And I got to be the baseline for myself, which was <laughs> like horrifying. Like, hey, if anything goes wrong, like you're it, kid. Like <laughs> I know a lot, a lot of artists want to be unique and special, but this is not an area that you right. want to be unique. Be careful and what you wish for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had this massive growth under your arm, and I gotta imagine it was painful and uncomfortable. And then you go through the test and so on. What were some of your initial reactions emotionally? When you said that this is real and this is serious, what was going through your mind and your heart? Two things. First, it was like, I completely shut down, right? Like I completely shut down and I wasn't able to really respond the way that you think that someone would until I was checking in to the hospital. And then I had like a full, full body, full brain meltdown at that moment. But up until that point, I was just kind of like, ugh, like, of course this is happening to me. It makes total <laughs> sense that this is what's happening in my life right now. Not that it was expected or that it was something that I was hoping would happen, but just like the ridiculousness of it all yes. and how ridiculous my life was up until that point was just like, you know what? You're right, universe. This is exactly what you had in store for me. I get it. Okay, cool. Got it. So the kind of the absurdity on top of absurdity and uh, <laughs> curious here, Edward, did you have that kind of that basic outlook on life at that time that if something bad's going to happen, it's going to happen to me? Was that kind of who you were or were, was this kind of against the grain for what you were? No, I mean, I've, I've always considered myself to be like forced resilient, in a sense, like, in, okay. in and what I mean by that is like, you know, survived Catholic school for one as like, <laughs> as like a gay man growing up in central Pennsylvania, like I survived Catholic school, and then I immediately escaped and moved to New York at 18 on my own and like made it like I was I was doing yeah. the thing like I had my feet on the ground and I was alive. I was really counting on that to get me through this. But when it happened, it was it wasn't I think it was like the first time that I really, really felt knocked down because mm -hmm. like I had setbacks, of course, and it was just kind of like, okay, like, you know, that early 20s energy, that little puppy sure. energy where you're like, 
okay, fine, cool, setback, I'll figure it out, it's fine. And I still do have that thing, thankfully. But, um, you know, the, I think getting that diagnosis was the first time in the moment that I was like, oh, this isn't, this isn't just a setback. Like, this is dangerous and could be really, really, really bad. Sound like you kind of did your Cleopatra queen of denial thing for a while and you... Oh, yeah. I'm always a queen of denial. <laughs> Let's get that straight. <laughs> or not straight. You know? There you go. That's... <laughs> That's how I get through life is being a queen in denial. <laughs> you kind of have to have a moment of in denial and just to just kind of like, whoa, you know, this is, this is, this is more... Yeah than a uh, just to use the kind of the physical illness thing this is more than a cold or the flu or even something you know more serious and in, in, in some regards that you see you can recover from you know that you got to do something about this and so you had to deal with all the medical stuff you had to deal with and and that was quite an ordeal in and of itself was it not it absolutely was and and kind of what you're talking about and like please for the love of god call this episode queen in denial <laughs> but like that that denial, I think, is kind of what got me through okay. it. You know, like I have a sign in front of my in front of my desk here that says "Be delusional." You know, and it, it kind of is that delusion of having to be like, oh, "I'm fine. Like everything's going to be great." You know, and just kind of like letting cancer exist, but then charge forward with your life as if though nothing mm -hmm. was happening. Um, and I did that as best as I could, even when I was told I shouldn't, which, you know, in the end. <laughs> One of the ways of looking at it then, Edward, is that another op op opposing thing of the denial thing as a coping mechanism is to just flat out give up from the onset. There are people who do that, you know, get a bad news and oh, say, yeah. forget it, pull the sheets up and say it's over with. And I think that that's a natural response. And I, I certainly I'm not trying to say that I didn't have that moment. Sure. Like there were definitely moments where I was just like laying in bed under the covers, like staring at the ceiling, like, is this it? Like, uh, what? Like I was 24, 25 mm, at the time. Wow. And it was just like. Have is this really all I was put here for? Like, what in the world? And I had those moments a couple times throughout. And I don't, I, and I, I know I talk very lightly about this and I do try to make light of it as much as possible because of the ridiculousness of the sure. whole experience. But I certainly had the moments where I was like, what is happening? Like, is this, am, am, I remember having a very specific conversation with my friend Jordan. Um, I was hospitalized because I was just living my life and cancer was along for the ride. I went down to Florida to visit my sister and got in the ocean and went swimming, which you shouldn't do if you don't have an immune system because the ocean is disgusting. And I came back with a parasite like a very dangerous parasite. And so I like lost like 15 pounds in four days. I looked amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, give me that parasite again. But I was talking to my friend Jordan, who was there with me in the hospital. And I was like, is this it? Because again, it was the ridiculous right. on top of the ridiculous. Right. I already had this insane cancer. And then I got a parasite wow. from the ocean, like stupid and un and totally avoidable and of my own stupid doing. And so it was this, this conversation where I was like, this is what's going to take me out, isn't it? But you had a pretty serious medical situation. Your life was indeed threatened as a uh, young man in your 20s, was it not? Yeah, it absolutely was. We had, um, there was a moment with my oncologist that I asked to see her, you know, and she met me in the the lobby of the hospital. Yeah. And I just was like, this isn't going well. Can you please yeah. level with me and tell me what's really going on? And it, the answer, the answer wasn't, this is the end, you're going to die. But it was very much, we don't really know what to do. Like everything yeah, we're trying right, so far right, has not right. worked. I think this was like three rounds of chemo in. I looked like death. It was terrible. But somehow I was still able to get around on my own because 
I was not a sick person and I was going to do it. (laughs) And cancer was along on my journey. Like, what am I going to do? And something had to, something had sure. to change. Everything that we are all collectively experiencing is it. I mean, like, it's kind of funny to watch again, because I've been through this already in a way. You know, it wasn't a pandemic globally, but it was it was a version of a pandemic within myself, you know, to to kind of draw that parallel to COVID. I mean, like I had done quarantine while I was in my stem cell transplant. I didn't I didn't get, I I didn't have, get yes. to leave a hospital room. Everyone around me had to wear masks, gowns, gloves, the little booty things, the caps, like everything. And and, you know, being right. in that room for a month without being able to leave or move like when COVID happened, I was like, I got this. I've done this already. I'm good. Um, and I had a great time because mm. <laughs> I already knew what to do. <laughs> the kind of the reason why I wrote my book in the first place is what you're talking about and coming out of it and like losing a job, not understanding reality anymore. Like, how do I feel about the people around me? Because I had a second to sit back and be like, wait a minute, maybe this isn't the life that I thought I wanted. Maybe this isn't exactly where I thought my path was going to take me. And now I have the brain space, the time and the bandwidth to figure that out. And that's exactly what surviving anything traumatic is like, because you do have a moment to sit back and be like, hang on a second. Am I the person I want to be? Am I doing what I want to do? Am I becoming the adult and the thing that I want to be in the end? You start to shift a little bit from what, okay, this is happening to me and I have no control to sensing that, okay, this is happening to me, but here's how I'm going to react to it. Here's how I'm going to respond to it. And here's what I'm going to do about it. Was there a shift in how you thought about things there? Yeah. I mean, it, it it's that, but over and over and over and over yeah. and over again, like on, on a regular basis. And I mean, that's kind of true with life anyway, because life is constantly changing. We are constantly changing and it's how we adapt and or don't adapt to either any of those changes Mm -hmm. that is really the important part in my specific circumstances like i went from you know having a very promising career to being and a very attractive 24 year old (laughs) um to being like a bloated toad in a hospital gown being told that like maybe this is it it was definitely like this moment that was very shaking that forces you to kind of take a look around and be like, okay, hang on a minute. This isn't like, if this was the end, I would not be happy. And so then taking the reins of that and deciding where to drive and how hard and how long. And I wish, I wish that I would have figured that out sooner because I spent very many years after I was told I was cancer free, like floundering and trying to figure out and navigate why I felt the way I felt. Well, let's, let's go with that. You've said the phrase taking the reins and you had to still kind of navigate that and figure that out. What do you think are some of the, Oh, couple ways that you did take the reins to help you to navigate this and get to a better place that you're at now? I mean, first and foremost, it was kind of like what I was saying about how cancer was along on the journey with me and not me being dragged around by cancer. And it's it like you said, it's very easy to let that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just this conscious decision that I made that I was like, I don't want to be a sick person. I don't want to behave like one. I don't want to be viewed as one. And so to me, finding that personal inner strength to get up and go outside. And, you know, I live in a big city, so it's very walkable. Mm-hmm. And so like take long walks, go places that I would normally go and just try and be a person because you have so little of that allowance while you're a patient Mm -hmm. 
and being a patient, you're not a person. You know, I say this all the time, like hospitals, especially teaching hospitals tend to treat you and or view you as though you're a science project yes. because it is the practice of medicine and they forget the humanizing part of it, yes. which is another reason why I wrote this book. <laughs> and so that was, that was part of that. That was really like making the conscious decision to behave as, as if though I were a normal person uh, who did not have cancer. And so like that certainly had its setbacks. I mean, see parasite conversation, you know, and so like maybe proceed with a little more caution than I did. Right, right. <laughs> but the other part of that too is, is, you know, once you're told that you're cancer free and, or that you're good to go for a while, like what, whatever that language right. looks like you're, it's not a matter of taking the reins. It's having the reins shoved at you and being like, have fun. <laughs> good luck. Go for it. Yeah. Take, yeah. Take and then you have to decide yeah. from there what to do and it's it's it can be wonderful and i wish that i would have had that perspective a little bit more back then because it is scary yeah. you're going you're walking through darkness yeah. you have no idea what's coming and there's panic at every turn because you think it's going to come back every little bruise and cut and scrape and cough you're like ah oh, i'm gonna have to go back to the hospital which is the last place you sure. want to be <laughs> well there's that that world of the hospital with the the wonderful gowns that you get to wear and uh you I'm know so needles stylish. and bells and whistles and dings and doctors and teaching all the equipment and everything going on that's that and there's some we it's a weird existence and you can't get kind of used to it but then you got to go out and you got to face the world and you got to deal with it and you and you found some ways of dealing with it the weird part is is that you do get used to it and that's i mean like humans are so resilient anyway regardless like you just adapt to it and that was so wild to me that when it was over I missed it. And I, it's not that I wanted to go back to the hospital, but it was like, I missed the feeling of being watched and taken care of and, and cared for and having a schedule and having the, the sense that there was something to do that day, yeah, yeah. even if it was getting inundated with drugs, so, you know, it, it was still like this structure that felt kind of nice. And you like, you know, it's a routine in, in a way and you adapt to it and it's kind of great. Until it's gone. And then you're like, wait a minute, I missed that, but I shouldn't. And why? <laughs> Someone else I talked to made a kind of a weird analogy. I mean, they kind of related the long hospital stay and getting out to somewhat like some people might experience being in prison or jail for a while in that structure environment and getting out and trying to face face uh, the, the face the world. A hundred percent. We'll get back to our interview in just a second. Are you curious about just how you can cope with cancer, with hope and humor, which heals? Then I've got an answer for you. It's our Healing with Hope and Humor free five-day course. By just listening to 15-minute daily audios over the course of five lessons, you will have a plan for coping with cancer with hope and humor that heals. It's easy peasy. Just go to cancerandcomedy.com slash free to get started. Please and thank you. Now, back to the interview. Let me ask about something else here, Edward. You Absolutely. You grew up a Catholic and there was, you know, certain manifestations of that which were not so good. Uh, but I'm curious what role, if any, did some sort of a sense of something greater than self or a spiritual element, what role, if any, did that play in this whole navigation process 
uh, for you? I mean, I think if I felt as if though there was something like that beforehand, I didn't during and after. And I think what it really made me do was default back to what I've always kind of believed in. And and I'll make the I'll sure. make the point, but I want to tell you a funny little story. Having gone up, having grown up and gone to Catholic school my whole life, there was this horrible religion teacher and i won't get into the details of that but there was a day in class that i specifically remember she was discussing and kind of painting the picture of other versions of religion and spirituality that were evil and bad because they weren't catholic and and one of them was secular humanism and i was like and she explained it in a sense that it's the belief or idolization of human beings and mortals and i was like What's so bad about that? Like, we all need people to look up to and to love and to aspire to. And I asked that question, and she didn't really answer satisfactorily, of course not, because why would she? But that has always stuck with me, the idea of secular humanism. And so to answer your question more directly, during this period of time where I didn't really feel as if though there was, you know, a higher power, greater good, whatever you want to call it, and that has since changed for me in a way, but... I became much more entrenched in my love for my family and my friends and the people around me who supported me and lifted me up Mm -hmm. and were there for me during that period of time. And it really just kind of like doubled down on the secular humanism thing where it's like watching my mom navigate her way through the hospital because she works in medical anyway. um, And the paperwork and the bills and the notes and the treatments and the drugs and the medication and the protocols. It was just like, you are an amazing human being. And it just like made me put her up on a higher pedestal than she already was. Same with my dad. The back and forth all the time on the train coming to the hospital to stay with me and make sure that there was a human being in my room to like in case anything would happen or just because you know like also higher pedestal and so to that point like that to me is secular humanism and that is what i really found kind of comfort in like the the doubling down on the love of my family and friends and did you find that the nature of your relationship with your uh, with your folks and other and your friends did it evolve did it change did it go deeper or uh what 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 role did it really play in your healing or your uh process of emerging out of your cancer i mean truthfully it was the role I don't think there was another one. You know, my parent, my parents were there every step of the way. I had friends rotating in and out of my room at all times, you know, and I didn't really mm-hmm. tell anybody that I had cancer in the first place. It was my family and my closest friends. And so I had this little small handful of friends that just were already close with me, but really, really got close with me in, during that period of time. And, you know, it was family and chosen family. And you can't do better than that. And, you know, I call my pa- I call my parents every day. I call my parents every night we talk and we catch up even like mundane, dumb stuff. Um, but you know, right around, right after dinner time, like we, we talk every night, you know, for many people, it involves a different way. And, and I, I would hope that you might even consider in a way your cancer became a little bit of a gift to your relationship to, with your parents that you have a deeper level there. And maybe, maybe not specifically yeah. to my parents, but I think in general, and this is going, this is going to hit, hit, like warning this is going to hit the wrong way for some people but for me where i'm at right now in hindsight cancer is the best thing that could have ever happened to me even though it was a huge insurmountable mountain to climb multiple careers i've had the book everything that's going on with my book like none of that would have happened if it weren't for cancer and lord knows where uh, i would be right now i love the way you put that And, and for many people when you have a dramatic traumatic experience 
you can kind of go one of either way. You can go down with the ship, so to speak, or you can see it as a turning point, a reflection point. And it seems to me that this is the catalyst, as you say, and part of the manifestation of that was, was writing was writing your book. The title is Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronic Illnesses. Love the title, man. Love it. And it's got to tell your story. Well, why did you write this book? Tell me about the book and you know how this kind of manifests this. Well, first and foremost, say that I cannot take credit for the title. My friend Alex, who was, who was one of the people who was there for me all the time, he came up with that on a whim while we were talking one day. And I was like, but actually. Aha, V8 <laughs> moment, right? Yeah. Um, what ended up being the sticking point was kind of what we were talking about earlier of like having this very cloudy kind of like un like misdirected understanding of getting through your life after the fact um and i think uh, this is one thing that people are not always privy to when they go through something traumatic like this um i had the privilege of being able to go to stupid cancers like cancer con they had this like online kind of like conference thing with different events and speakers and whatnot and the first night that i was there there were so many people talking about all of the reasons why i wrote this book and it just was so uplifting and validating because i feel sometimes i talk about this stuff in a vacuum and i don't get to hear often from people that are like i felt the same way because that's what got me to write the book i had met i'd met someone who had articulated to me how they felt they had just found out they were cancer free like three months prior to me meeting them and we had a conversation about it and everything he said i was <laughs> like oh that's what the last three years of my life have been okay uh, this can't be just the two of us. And so I reached out to two or three other friends of mine uh, who had had versions of cancers, different vari variants of cancer. And I asked them the same questions that he and I talked about. Like, what was, what was it like for you coming out? Was it harder? Was it difficult to navigate? Yes. What, was the, what was the aftercare feeling? What was that like? What were all the things that you had to do or felt misplaced in? And it was just one aha moment after another, after another, after another. And I was like, well. And you're, and you're no longer in this, this alone. This is it. <laughs> you had some connection as a community with others. And, and kind of to your point about like not wanting to like wallow in the woe is me of cancer. Like I avoided going to a lot of support groups. Or, th or things like cancer cons, and or I don't even know if that existed back then, but I avoided going to things like that because they tend, they do tend to be the people who curled up in a ball and are, are very like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. It's like, okay, we'll make a decision, you know, and, and I, I like results and I like action taking <laughs> and I like solutions. Um, and so like the, that kind of stuff just didn't really feel like it was a good fit for me, but being able to talk to these people and gather gather that information in a way that I was able to write this book about the process. And then after the fact, and just being so lost and like having no idea, I think I compare it to like being little red riding hood in the woods where you're just kind of like, where am I going? Well, and I love that you put into a correlation here with musical theater and things like that, which the whole purpose, and this is just my take on it as a consumer uh, musical theater is that the idea is to have a little bit of escapism, to have some fun, to hear some great songs, to see some great acting and to just escape for a little while. And so tell me about the correlation between uh, musical theater and dealing with cancer. You know, kind of what we were talking about earlier, the ridiculous upon the ridiculous. What yeah. is more ridiculous than a musical, right? Like that's why <laughs> I got into it because it's fun. Yeah. And 
on top of that, beyond the fun and the ridiculous, there are lessons to learn within the text of either the script or the songs. And there's always life lessons somewhere in there to learn. They may not be obvious. Sometimes they're subliminal. Sondheim is brilliant at giving you those in both ways. I wanted to write this book for that purpose, for that same kind of formatting where it's like, it's fun, it's flashy, and like there's a lot going on. And it's very heightened and, and ridiculous and insane. But then you also have like the story of what's happening and like the kind of tie up in the in a bow lesson at the end of each part. And so in writing this book, I made each chapter a little show of its own mm. um, by, by using and framing it in other musicals. And it was just it like it was it really in short is what we were talking about earlier, which is the ridiculous on the ridiculous. A musical, you know, is bigger than life. I, I know one of the ones you were in was uh, Mamma Mia, and I can't help but think about that because I'm a child of the '70s, my man. I was a I was a right. disc, I was a disc jockey in the '70s on the radio when uh, you know Mamma Mia and you know, Dancing Queen and all that kind of stuff was on. Oh, yeah. And so when that musical came, I've seen that musical in person in the movies. I think in person three times. And so I saw the, this, how the story came together, all these different uh, pieces there, but yeah. how uh, the absurdity came a true story, a real life story. And it's a well, lot of fun, a lot of fun. So, and nothing is more absurd than the book of Mamma Mia and the music of ABBA. Like who <laughs> I, I grew up listening to ABBA gold. That was one of my yeah. favorite albums. Waterloo will always be it. You know? Yeah. I've done Mamma Mia twice. And <laughs> I've seen well, the movie. And I would have never know. thought when I was spinning that record, which we used to have records back in the day, uh, back uh, in the seventies, that, that would somehow come out to some story that was moving emotionally. And you, you brought that together in your book here. And that's uh because with a real life drama that's played out. But to drive the point home of the ridiculous on ridiculous, it's about this woman who's like slept yeah, around. So right. She doesn't know who the father yeah, That's right. Is. That's the whole deal. The but that's, biggest, but that's real life. But that's still real life, <laughs> man, for a lot of folks. No, totally. But but it really does like compound the ridiculous on ridiculous. And I think it's so funny. And sometimes things come around, Edward, that you just go, man. Good things to start to happen too when you switch and get your attitude yeah. uh, together about it. And uh, among other things that are happening with you, it looks like your book may somehow be adapted or rewritten for a television show or series or uh, possible uh, production. Tell us more about that, how that's evolved and came about. Full transparency, I wrote this book in through the lens of Rob Ashford, who's a brilliant director. He's the director that uh, he's the film director that directed the Chicago movie musical. Um, and so in writing this book in my head, it was always just like a flash out of reality into a production number. And so like, that was the scope that I was writing this book on. And it was never, I, I think it was always intended for screen. I wanted the book first to be able to adapt it, but the script is about halfway done. There's some music in the works and, um, I'm really hoping to be in pre-production by fall. And um, I'm, it's just going to be so ridiculous and funny, and I can't wait. Well, I'd like for you to think about, and but can you think about an episode in your whole process of the cancer journey to where you're at now, when you just kind of thought, you know, this is just flat out funny, or I like the, the way I like to term it, is turn the grim into a grin. But was there an episode or an antidote that you might recall where you kind of thought, okay, this is just, this is just laugh out loud funny? I had a stem cell transplant and I was my own donor. I gave my, I donated my own stem cells to myself. They take them out, they treat them, they pump them back into you. And that is after a very long, like I think a seven day constant drip of the 
highest level of chemo they can give you until you're dead and then they just watch they just watch your numbers tank into zero and then once it's at zero then you get your stem cell infusion and you know your body grafts it and rebuilds and goes back from there science is insane during this period of time my mom was there on this particular day i think it was like three days after the actual infusion itself and i'm lying on the couch in my room which was like this big like fake tan leather couch because the beds are horribly uncomfortable and I refuse to sleep in them. So I only slept on this couch and I'm just laying there on my phone. And all of a sudden I start to not feel very well. And I had been warned ahead of time that like, you're not going to make it to the bathroom. Like it's just going to happen. And like, you need to be okay with it. And that never happened for me ever in that period of time, which I was very confused about because everyone was assuring me that it was a hundred percent was going to happen. Instead, what happened is I just looked at my mom and I was like, I think I'm going to be sick, which like I only threw up maybe three times throughout the entirety of chemo. Like wow. it didn't okay. affect, it didn't affect me for some reason. <laughs> um, but I, I said to her, I was like, I'm going to be sick. And so she tore into the bathroom and got one of those basins yeah. and like put it on the floor next to the sofa. And I just kind of like rolled over. And as I did this like green, like literally the color of my couch yeah, behind me right. right here, this, this color, like this emerald green liquid with nothing else in it. It was just this clear emerald green oh my liquid gosh. came out, came out of me and not only filled the basin, but like I needed another oh one. <laughs> and it was so alarming. I was like, why is the emerald city coming out of my body? What is happening? Um, we called in a nurse. And the nurse comes in and we're thinking that they're going to be like, oh, my God, like, call someone, do a thing. We need to. And she was like, oh, yeah, okay, that's normal. (laughs) And she just came over and she like picked it up and like, like dumped it in the toilet and flushed it. And then she came out and and basically just told me that because it was a good sign that the graph was working, because what it does is it kills off your music membrane, mucus membrane from your mouth to your butt. And it completely kills it off, destroys it, and then it has to come out somewhere. And it just decided to come out through my mouth. So you thought you were having an alien coming out of you or something, and you, oh, yeah. Right, like very, (laughs) very space ball moment. And like, and just sitting there, and like, after they told us that, my mom just looked at me, and I just started cracking up. Because it it was so, again, like the ridiculous, it was like, what is going on? Like, I didn't think a body could hold that much liquid, and here it is, like... You gotta, you gotta laugh at some of this stuff, don't you? You just got to. What we're really about here on Cancer and Comedy is learning from people like you who have had this journey and are still here and say, but I'm not giving up. You know, I'm still going. I'm still after it. And you still are an incredibly creative person. We've just talked to you about your writing and your musical theater, but you also are a musician and producer and so on, voiceovers and things like that. Incredible. You've got a gift to the world and we want to keep that going. We want to keep uh, that going and hopefully we'll see your television program here before too long. But I got a feeling, Edward, there's folks out there who are hearing your voice and my voice here today are thinking, okay, there's something here that I need to learn more about. So if folks want to learn more about you, your book or your website or anything, all the opportunities they have to be touched by you, how can they uh, find out more about you, Edward? I mean, I'm I'm all over the social medias at Edward Miskey on everything, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, 
Instagram, all of it. Um, I just launched a podcast called How to Be a Big Deal, which is on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. Um, there's edwardmiskey.com. My book is available at Barnes & Noble and Apple Books and Walmart and Amazon and all of the places. <laughs> and if you're in New York City, please go to the Drama Bookshop and buy a copy there because I love supporting small businesses and myself. <laughs> well, we're just going to leave it at this. What good What good word, what would you share with a person, especially a younger person? You know, you were 25 when this all happened to you. Be stubborn. Mm-hmm. Stick up for yourself, you know, be stubborn with yourself, you know, and, and I think that stubbornness is really what kind of got me through it because I made myself be physically active and I made myself do things. And that was, you know, making myself do things that I didn't feel like doing. Eating was one of them. I can't tell you how much I force fed myself during that whole thing because I knew I had to. Um, and so I would just say, like, be a stickler for yourself, you know, advocate for yourself and be stubborn and make yourself do the things. Hold yourself I love it because it goes back to our part of our initial conversation. Don't let uh, cancer, you know, happen to you. You are ha- you are having a life, and cancer's along for the ride. You take control. Exactly. Awesome. Awesome. Well, his name is Edward Miskey, and he's at edwardmiskey.com. and we'll put links to everything he's about at our website, cancerandcomedy.com, with Dr. Brad Miller. Fascinating guest. Love to have you with us. Get the book, which is cancer. Musical theater and other chronic illnesses. Our guest today on Cancer and Comedy, Edward Miski. Thanks for being our guest today, my friend. You know, that was just absolutely fantastic. And I love hearing Edward's stories because they, you know, as, as you said, one of the biggest things is he talks about resilience. He talks about being stubborn. I thought that was very interesting. Um, and one of the other things that excuse me, I really loved was that he said all of this gave him time to reflect on what he had been and what he's now going to be. And, and I just loved that because that really is very much about being resilient. And so, you know, it was, it was just fantastic. So what did you think when you were talking with Edward? What, what, what a cool, what a cool, funny, interesting guy. Okay. I know. I want to have dinner with him, right? Yeah. And, uh, Yes, and I do. I do too, and I'm, I'm uh, very hopeful that we hear and see more of him. You know, he mentioned about the possibility yeah. of a television right. program based on his oh book. Gosh, that would yeah. be so cool. And so we certainly are going to keep up with him about that. But he he mentioned a couple things I didn't think are important. We talk about resilience. He talked about you know being the queen of denial for a while. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. about how we all kind of go through this kind of this cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, a cycle of resilience, if you will, yeah. where we kind of go through denial and depression and mm-hmm. and other bad things mm-hmm. like that. And, and that's he, normal. That is absolutely normal. But uh, he talked about that. And he, you know, and he was a young man too when he went through this, twenty five years old, and you know, dealing with all the other dynamics of being a young a young man, and in the in the theater in the theater world. But I also was intrigued and about how he found sources of strength mm-hmm. that I think are good lessons uh, for all of us uh, to Deb. Right. You know, he found it in family. Mm-hmm. I was so, I was impressed by his conversation about his mom and dad, how he talks right. to them, oh, talks yes. to them mm-hmm. you know, every day. And I just encourage our listeners, our listener to uh, seek out whatever source of support that you can have. Mm-hmm. Some cases going to be a family, some cases friends right. might be a professional uh, mm-hmm. person as well. And I also remember thought about how he kind of took this opportunity to kind of reevaluate his 
belief system and his purpose mm-hmm. in life and where he's going in life. And, and, uh, and of course, you know, we're all about, uh, healing through uh, hope and humor here. And he had mm-hmm. some, uh, uh, humor and laughter in his life and as a coping mechanism mm-hmm. to deal with some of the things there. I mean, he had, you know, that episode he had about, you know, right. Uh, Ooh, about, about Ew, the, the green, yeah. The, the mm-hmm. green bomb and everything mm-hmm. it was, yeah, it was kind of crazy, but you know, Hey, <laughs> Unfortunately, bodily functions as is yep. a part of this whole humor oh, thing yeah. when you have cancer mm-hmm. or bad diseases. And uh, but he also talked, you know, kind of the need to, uh, to uh, when you have a traumatic life event, to discuss mm-hmm. it and process it. And, uh, you know, that's why he's wrote the book and why he's right. on our podcast and things like that to, to process this in a way. And I just hope that our listener, uh, uh, you know, we uh, takes to heart what mm-hmm. uh, Edward shared right. and get pick up his book. We will have connections to uh, everything about his website and his book at our website, cancerandcomedy.com. And we thank him for being, uh, for being our guest today. A great guest, right. don't you think? Oh, he was fabulous. And, you know, I haven't had the chance to read his book and, and, you know, now I'm going to, and like we said, cannot wait to see what's next for him, TV, movie, whatever it is. Um, we, we're going to be able to say we were there before. We knew him before, right? <laughs> I, uh, you, you never know. Hey, just seemed like the type of guy who uh, we're going to hear more from. We're going to hear right. more from him. Definitely. And, and it could he's going to really continue to have his name in big lights and it's going to be so much fun. Yes. And we were there. Yes. Right. Right. Well, you know, it's now time for our cancer and comedy segment. And I know people are waiting for this. Oh, boy. So it's time for Dr. Brad's bad joke of the day. Well, uh, Deb, hey, I was just thinking about, you know, you just spent some time in the hospital and I mm-hmm. just had some medical appointments recently. And, you know, there's a person that when we are in the hospital or a medical appointment that we almost always uh, see when you deal with some medical stuff. And oftentimes uh, we see a person who comes around with sick and it's oftentimes a a lady, you know, with a needle and a syringe and some little vials and that kind of thing. Right. Those people who are come to get your blood. (laughs) And you know what I'm talking about. Anybody who's gone to the doctor, you have these people who, you know, come to stick you with that. The last time I was in the hospital, though, the uh, the nurse came by and uh, she was the the one who came around to get your blood. But uh, instead of a uh, syringe and a vial, she had something different. What'd she have? Well, if you can believe it, Deb, she had... Yeah, right there in her hand, in her in her uh, coat there. She had this big box of crayons. However, every crayon was a red crayon. Crayons? What's that all about? Well, I asked her, hey, what's up with all the red crayons? And she looked up and down and said, sir, you never know when I'm going to need to draw blood. Oh, groan, groan. <laughs> that's a bad one. And that's our Dr. Brad's bad joke of the day. But now let's shift gears a bit for Dr. Brad's faith it or break it segment. Well, faith it or uh, break it uh, today, this is where we uh, lift up just a little bit of some faith element. It might be from the Bible. It might be from something else. I did want to read you a very short passage of Scripture from Acts uh, fourth chapter, verse 36, and it's by this guy whose name was Joseph, but he had a nickname, and here's how it goes. 
Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, a guy named Barnabas, but that was his nickname. His real name was, was Joseph. Barnabas was his nickname because it meant son of encouragement. Mm-hmm. So I just was thinking about that. What are some times when I have been encouraged? Well, one of them was recently when I made public, uh, you know, about my cancer diagnosis. A lot of people right. reached out to me and mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, cards and letters and notes, uh, or, uh, a lot of Facebook posts and this type, type of thing. Some calls were encouraging. Hey, just hope you're doing okay, praying for you and that, that, that type of thing. That's a good thing. But I, I can't but think, Deb, about you know, many years ago, in the neighborhood 20 years ago, I was going through a real tough time in my career. I'm a retired pastor. And I was going through a real tough time. And a colleague wrote me a note of encouragement, just basically said, hey, Brad, you're doing, you're doing okay. You're doing a good job. Uh, and uh, you know, be encouraged is one of the things that he said in his note. And you know what, Deb? I kept that note on the little bulletin board right next to my office so I could see it mm-hmm. uh, every single day. And I kept yep. it there for about 10 years, because, and I needed to look at it on a very often basis because there are discouraging things that happen to us all the time Mm -hmm. and we need to be built up by encouraging things. So here's this guy named Barnabas. He's called Barnabas because he was known to his other people to be an encourager. So I thought, what does it take to be known as a son of encouragement or maybe a daughter of encouragement? What are the qualities? I came up with two or three things that I think might be helpful to you listener. One of them is presence, and that uh, Barnabas was just around, I believe. He was a part. The apostles were the ones who were the followers of Jesus who were kind of engaged in the everyday get-it-done work, okay? And he was uh, was was one of them, and he supported them. So the, there is what the, the presence. And so I would encourage you to be a son or daughter of encouragement by being present in people's lives. Whatever their need is, it might be cancer, something really bad, or it might be something else, you know, just to be a present. And that means being a good listener and don't be, you know, don't be worried about being a, being an influencer or famous. So don't worry about your phone and or television or anything else. Focus on the other person and be have presence. And the second thing I thought was presence as in kind of physical, tangible stuff that you can oh. do. And what I mean mm-hmm. by that is part of us, one of the things he did was he sold his field and he gave the money to the apostles to help with their what they did, which included developing a community, feeding the poor, and other mm-hmm. things like that. Right. So what can you do in a physical, tangible way to be helpful to somebody else? Sometimes that's a card or a letter, taking somebody to lunch, go shopping, you know, whatever. I know of a guy who would show up at people's house, <laughs> show up with people who he knew were, uh, you know, just uh, – Kind of get my life. He'd buy him a pair of shoes. It was an odd thing, but he would take them to the local mall and buy them a pair of shoes. If you can do something, do it, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, to do that. And most many times it can be something very simple. Take it somebody out for a cup of coffee, whatever it is. But so you got presence as in being, uh, being there, your physical you know, listening. And the second presence as intangible things that you can do for other people on the the third thing I thought about, Deb, was being what I call a personhood magnifier. That is just 
celebrating with uh, with somebody else, you know, celebrate their value. Sometimes maybe offering a little advice, but more often than not, it's going to be just uh, engaging, laughing, crying, being a human being with other people, uh, tell a story, you know, with other people, have a good conversation. That's kind of helps people feel like a good person. I remember when I was in the country of Columbia several years ago, and there's a group that was helping build a house for some really poor people in a barrio, which is a slum area. And the people who were there, part of this group, about 25 people in 105 degree heat. It was terrible heat. It was this, this time of year. And, you know, there were some rich people from the local businesses, the shipbuilding yards, who were the, uh, the CEO types who were there. And there were also some of the local poor people who were there, but also there were students. Like I had a group of students with me from America, but there were students from like Argentina to several countries in South America, as well as from Germany and Great Britain. It was an eclectic group of people who came together and we were serving this, this family, this little family. I remember that the only thing this one child in this family had was a pair of purple underwear and that's all he had in his life. He was about seven years old. But he came together and we had a lot of fun together and we offered a gift to that family and everybody was uh, was encouraged by that experience. And so I just want to encourage our people out there, our listener, to be a son or a daughter of encouragement. Because you know what? When you're an encourager, it's about you being, a, being offering cheer and a cheerful heart is good medicine. I love it. You know, and and I think we should just issue a challenge to everybody to say, how can you encourage someone today? You know, because I think that is such an easy thing to do, but so important. It's now time for our Cancer and Comedy featured segment as we hear from our lifter uppers. Did you know that you can be on Cancer and Comedy as a lifter upper listener with your uplifting story about your cancer journey? Just go to voicemail.cancerandcomedy.com. Our lifter upper for this episode is Mark who tells an incredible story of a brush with death, which changed his attitude about everything. But all these kind of things are the, are the really funny things that just, that just happened. And, and honestly, I'll I'll tell you what, I, I always try to look on, on the lighter side uh, of things. Like when Jeremy, when Jeremy passed, um, the the priest that gave the the sermon happened to be a high school friend. I hadn't I hadn't seen Alessandro since grade twelve, and I'm just like, and I'm like, you know, why am I crying? <laughs> and it just made no sense. Is all these these ridiculous little things that go on? I've I've nearly exited this world myself. Um, there was a, a band jam I had come out of. And I was putting my gear away in the trunk of the car. I was standing with her with my friend. I just put my amp in the trunk and I turned around and I saw Brian and Brian goes, a plane just crashed over there. And he pointed across the street um, and a plane literally had just crashed. It's not just the, and there was fire and flames and everything and, and all that. And the, the interesting thing was that the impact that that has on you to look at sort of the lighter side of life, realizing that your you know, you could go at any moment, mm. um, and then to see, and then to see family, friends pass away from cancers or what have you, it, it that just settles in, and it's it's really, I think, this moment is more a cumulative effect of all these small little things that have just gone on. 
Well, lifter uppers, this brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Cancer and Comedy uh, with Dr. Brad Miller. We like to call you folks who follow cancer and comedy lifter uppers or lifters for short, because cancer and comedy is all about telling uplifting stories of people like you who are kicking cancer's butt with healing through hope and humor. You can join those of us who are turning the grim into grins by telling us your uplifting story at voicemail.cancerandcomedy.com and keep up with everything Cancer and Comedy through our Cancer and Comedy Chronicles newsletter at newsletter.cancerandcomedy.com. Well, that's it for now. Please join us next time on Cancer and Comedy. And if you like what you hear, please pass this podcast on to someone in your life who needs to turn their grim into a grin. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Cancer and Comedy Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. Make sure you visit our website, cancerandcomedy.com, where you can follow the show and get our newsletter. Like what you hear? Then tell a friend about Cancer and Comedy, the show that lifts your spirits with hope and humor that heals. Until next time, keep turning the grim into a grin.